We're going to start in verse number 81. We're going to read 81 through verse 96. These two octet, octet, however it goes. Um, we're going to read those two to begin. And then we will, um, then we'll start and kind of pick up where we left off in verse 85. And we'll try to go pretty fast today and hopefully to get through all the way through verse number 96 today. All right. All right, let's pray and then we'll read verse 81 together. Our Lord in heaven, thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for uh, your goodness and kindness to us, especially, Lord. We know that your kindness was most obviously and plainly expressed on that cross. When you died in our place, when you bore our sins and you paid the penalty and, uh, and you uh, reconciled us to yourself, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your resurrection. Lord, thank you as we study Psalm 119 about the Word of God. Thank you for the Word of God. Lord, just like the psalmist says here, if it wasn't for your Word, we would have long ago perished in our affliction. And uh, you sustain us through your Word. Lord, today is no different. We, we need you so bad. Uh, and in many ways, Lord, we don't even know how we need you. Uh, but Lord, we do and we confess that. And we pray that you would... Uh, that you would sustain us, you would teach us, that you would truly meet with us in our Sunday school class here, but not only this class, but also the classes that are meeting downstairs and in the back. Bless those classes and those teachers and students as well. But also in our services today and the fellowship, Lord, I pray that you would meet with us. Truly, your spirit would warm our hearts uh, to, to you and to, uh, to love one another and to love your work and your will. Lord, we just, we, we just ask you to do a work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm, 85, uh, Psalm 119, verse 81 says this, My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. They had almost consumed me upon earth, but I forsook not thy precepts. Quicken me after thy loving kindness so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. <clears throat> I will never... Forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. Now, as I said, look at verse number 85. Last week we, we, were, we finished up in verse number 84, talking about the brevity of life. And we talked about how that God knows, first of all, our days are numbered. We have a limit and we need to live 
with the perspective of that limit. Because even though we, even though we, give, we give lip service to the fact that we know our life is, uh, is limited, yet we live as if it's not. We live as if we have all the time in the world. And for those of us that are afflicted with the fault of procrastination, that is exceptionally true of us. And I'm including myself because that's the way I am. And the procrastinator says, I have all the time, I have plenty of time left to do it. But the pro- and that's one thing on a day-to-day basis, but when that's extended to the life, that can be a very big problem. And so we know that our life is limited, the days that we have are limited, and that uh, we have to live with that perspective. But we also know that God is also aware of that limitation. And He knows how many days we have remaining. He knows what we've done with the days we've, we've already had. And so we move on from there to verse number 85. The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. Now we think of a pit, that's not something we come across that, all that often, but when you're talking about a Bible pit, you might, be, you might be thinking of, as we read a pit, a lot of times they would dig wells, and in, in Cambodia, you know, wells here are, you know, everything in America is so sanitized, isn't it? It's so sanitized. In other words, they have a, the moment they have a, a, a like a, a, there's a, for instance, a shooting or a car accident where it has fatalities or something like that, what do they do? The fire trucks come and surround it and they have sheets and they have canvas things they spread around it to block the view of anything and that's not so in other parts of the world. Oh, we've seen some things that we wish we had not seen. Uh, but that's the way America is sanitized. You know, everything is so sanitized. Well, one of those is a well. And in, in the United States, you have a well, and they dig, basically, they just bore it down with this, essentially, a real thin, you know, uh, pipe. They, they dig down deep, and then they, you know, there's no, like, open hole or anything like that. It's just a pump, and then it pulls the water out, and it filters it, and that kind of thing. But in other parts of the world, those, those wells can be large, well, when that well dries up, what are you left with? You're left with a pit. You're left with a pit. Now, let me ask you something. Uh, let's see. Brother Vernon might know this. I, I, don't, I don't know the history of everybody here, but I know when I was in the Marine Corps, we, uh, we, had the, we had the privilege and honor of going out into the middle of the woods and digging a hole big enough to fit ourselves in. Right. And that, that only came up, you know, about four feet. It only came up to about here enough to stand up in so that you would, you know, protect your body. We called it a fighting hole. The army called it a foxhole. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here, a pit. When you think of a pit, we're thinking about the pit that Joseph's brothers put him in. This would be a pit that 10 or 15 feet deep, you know, a big, wide, uh, you know, a large pit enough to fit a, a person at least. But there's, there's no water, there's no food, and you throw somebody in there, they're dead. You just walk away, and if your conscience can walk away from their cries, then they'll die there. You see, when you think about a pit, one, one author I read says this, is think about the amount of effort that has to go into digging a pit. Now, I know those fighting holes we, fought, we, uh, we dug in the Marine Corps, uh, we just used a, an entrenching tool, you know, so it was a, just a you know, makeshift shovel, but, you know, it took a lot of effort. Imagine a a 10-foot hole, 15-foot hole dug, large enough to fit, fit a person in. What that shows, though, is it says in verse 85, the proud have dig pits for me. 
which are not thy law. Look how much premeditation and effort they, that went into entrapping God's people. Think about that. And this is, you know, the, the amount of time, sweat, and effort, probably money, if you're using hired servants to do it. Imagine, and I know this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. You know, there probably, probably aren't literal pits we're being referred to here, but, but the idea is imagine how much time and money and effort has been expended all to trap a godly person, to cause them to fall. Now, translate that to the work of Satan. Satan's schemes, his attempts to ensnare us are complex. They are dangerous. And the only way in the world that we have a chance to avoid those pits, because I want to I point something out to you. Look at verse 87. There's one word in verse 87 that's interesting. It says this, They had almost consumed me upon earth. You see that? Almost. The, the wicked dug pits for the psalmist, in other words, to try to ensnare him, but he didn't fall in it. He was delivered. You know what? You think about satanic, you know, and I know people these days, you know, and I'll be honest with you, it is, you know, coming up in a, in a secular world, secular society, you know, that I came up in, I, I was raised in the 90s, you know, it, in the 90s, it was, you know, the, a lot of the religious um, morals and things that were present in society had already gone by, the, by that time. So I came up in a society where everyone, no one thinks in those terms. In my, in my generation. And so sometimes, you know, the idea of a devil is, is, is kind of laughed at. You know, there is a personality who is tempting people. But you know what? It is absolutely true. And the fact that nobody believes it demonstrates how cunning he is because he has, he has dug pits and nobody knows that he dug them, but yet they fall in them. Now you think about in Southeast Asia, you know, the enormous bottomless pit called Buddhism that swallows people up, you know. And th these pits are numerous. They're of all different shapes and sizes, all different depths. You know what? The devil lays pits for us. He has complex strategies to trap us. And make no mistake, if we fall at his devices, accept the grace of God, protect us and keep us. If we fall into those devices, he will destroy us with them. This is not a joke. This is not a hole in the ground where you accidentally step in and twist your ankle. He will absolutely destroy you and me spiritually and physically and in every way possible, just like he tried to do with Job. This is not a joke. It is important that we stay close to God. It is important that we seek the Lord, that we stay in his word. That is the only chance we have against these kinds of strategies. You know, there are other pits in scriptures that the proud dig in Psalm 7, uh, Psalm 57. But what do we find? Somebody, this is a little, bit, a little bit of trivia. The Bible mentions pits in a number of places that the proud dig. But what usually happens to the proud? They fall into their own pit. They, they, a lot of times in the Bible times, if they dug a pit for such a use, they would dig it and then cover it. 
so that it would not be evident, it would not be evident, so that an unsuspecting person would fall into it. They could be lured into it and fall into it, and that'd be it. That'd be it. Of course, in, I know in Vietnam they had booby traps that were like that, except they would be they had to have spikes and things that would be uh, that would be at the bottom of the pit. Those kinds of things. But often, it is those very things, those very strategies that end up taking the very person who plans to do harm to the godly. But notice this, which are not after thy law. I want want you to look at a verse here. Look at Acts chapter 23. Don't lose lose your place here, but look at Acts chapter 23 if you would. Verse number 12. This is an interesting story that happened to Paul. And you're talking about God protecting someone from from a pit. This is it right here. All right. God protected Paul by putting one of Paul's uh, nephews within earshot of a a private conversation. All right. Chapter 23. Verse number 12 says this. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were, they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing till we have slain Paul. Now look at chapter 25, if you would, verse Number three, you you see this popped up again. So it says, The high priest in verse 2, And the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against Paul, against him, that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying in wait, laying wait in the way to kill him. You see this? This is a pit dove. Now, here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to get. The verse that we're reading in Psalm 119 says that those pits are not after God's law. Now, let me ask you a question. Why are these Jews trying to kill Paul? Why are they trying to kill Paul? Okay, that's correct. But from their perspective, why are they killing Paul? Trying to kill Paul? He's a threat? What? Both of those are true simultaneously. They think they're doing God's service. See, they think that by killing Paul, they are killing someone who is spreading error and lies and false doctrine. All right? They're digging a pit for him. Here's here's what's happening in in this passage. And they tried to do this a number of times. The Jews in various places, they tried to kill Paul but they were violating God's own law by attempts at what we call extrajudicial murder. See, they were violating God's law by trying to kill Paul while at the same time claiming that they were doing doing God's will and God's service. You know what? That's not righteous. That's not righteous. You know, the, the Old Testament, the Old Testament law does give a prescription to take the life of those who spread heresy. That is true. But there is a way it must be done. 
You can't just go around willy-nilly because somebody says something you don't think is true and just execute them. Not under, not under this economy or under the Old Testament. You couldn't do that. That was not allowed. Who remembers the, the woman taken in adultery? Remember that? What happened with her? They brought this woman and threw her down at Jesus' feet, and a lot of people misunderstand. Listen, a lot of people use that passage to really teach a lot of error. But they threw her down at Jesus' feet, they said, she's been taken in adultery in the very act. The law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say? I'm paraphrasing. And did Jesus call for her execution? No, but why not? All right, well, let me back up. Was she worthy? Now, this is going to r- probably rub, rub your uh, feelings the wrong way a little bit, but let me ask you this. This woman taken in adultery, was she worthy of death? according to the law. Yes. Under the law, the adulterer and the adulteress were both worthy of death. They, under the right circumstances, they could be executed, both of them. Well, that's not something you hear very often. I guess that uh, adultery, adultery is more serious in God's sight than it is in our sight. And I'm referring to society. Okay, so let's just step back. So yes, according to the law, she was worthy of death. But there was a process. There was a a means whereby that was to take place. Okay? They did not fulfill that. They did not check those boxes. For instance, where was the man? Last I checked, you couldn't catch someone in adultery in the very act unless you also caught the other party. It literally is impossible. But he wasn't there like he should have been according to the law. Secondly, Jesus could not give his voice against her. Why not? Somebody whisper. What's that? He wasn't a witness. See, the witnesses had to be the ones to bring the accusation, but he wasn't a witness. So under no circumstances, even if he, of course, the Lord knew what the woman was up to, he knew what she had done, but he w- it was not his place under the law to bring, that, to bring that accusation against her. So he didn't. But when, when it was all said and done, the Lord did not, like everyone, like people say, the Lord did not raise his hand and say, bless you, my child. Nah, everything's good. You can go home now. No, he said, he, know, he, knowing she had sinned, said, what? Go and sin no more, which is a rebuke to the woman. It wasn't a pardon of what she had done. It was, in fact, he didn't even say he forgave her. He said, go and sin no more. <laughs> Don't do it anymore. You, you dodged a bullet that probably you probably could have gotten. You see, this is what the Jews were doing. They were digging a pit for Paul to take his life outside of the law of God. Here's the thing. Here's the point. That is not righteous. Doing something that we think is right against God's word is wrong. It's wrong. What they had is bloodlust. They had zeal and they had a thirst for Paul's blood. It was not righteous no matter what they thought. No matter how religiously zealous something might appear, if it's against God's word, it's wrong. And you know what? If we dig pits for others because we're envious, or jealous, 
or we have hatred or malice or we want to exact retribution. Digging pits, as I said last week, is no thing a Christian should be involved in ever. We are, the church of God does not persecute people. The most we do is put them out of our fellowship because the church of God is supposed to be holy. The church of God does not dig pits. There is no, despite whatever happened in the Reformation, there is no biblical grounds for a church to try to enforce some law upon someone for conduct that they've done to, to exact some sort of uh, sentence upon them or something. It's just not there. It's just not there. Now let's look at verse number 86. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. Notice that. I'm going to try to speed up here. They persecute me wrongfully. Now, on the subject of persecution, we cannot claim to be a victim of persecution if we are guilty of the sin for which we're being troubled. If we have done wrong, and as a result, trouble has come upon us, that's not persecution. Persecution only applies when we are innocent of the accusation. Right? That, is that not exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4? He says, suffer, suffer not as an evildoer. <laughs> in other words, don't be doing the things, don't be doing the things that people accuse you of, of, of doing. You're not doing, you should not be doing them, right? For instance, if you go to your job and you say you're a Christian and you tell your boss you're a Christian and your coworkers you're a Christian and you're dishonest and you're lazy and they fire you or they demote you or they give you a pay cut, that's not because you're a Christian. Right? That's not persecution. You see, you did wrong. We did wrong. Therefore, we, we suffered as a result of that wrong. This is, a plain, this is a plain teaching of Scripture. Look at verse 87. As I said, they had almost consumed me upon earth, but not quite. That's where the grace of God intervenes. This is the way God is in our life. God keeps us. He keeps our steps, even when we're so stupid. This idea that God is somehow just standing with His arms, arms crossed, that's a Cambodian saying that came to my mind, that he's standing with his arms crossed just waiting on us to fall and to laugh at us and, and to mock us as we fall. He's not doing that. Even in our failure, which is fairly frequently, right? God is keeping our steps. Even when we're, we stretch out our foot about to step in a pit because we're not being careful, not being close to the Lord, we're about to fall into it and all of a sudden God comes through because he keeps us even from our own selves. Almost, almost. Verse 88, quicken me after thy loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. You know, when I read this, just in passing, what, I, what, I, what came to my mind is this. We are but dead. We talked about quickening before, weeks ago, right? The idea of a quickening in Psalm 119. But I saw this and I thought, we are but dead people. 
if God does not energize us and make us alive, and I'm not talking about doctrinally speaking, I'm talking about on a day-to-day basis. The Spirit of God does not quicken us and enliven us and give us the strength and energy and grace that we need to, to live for Him, to keep His Word. We won't. That's why when we wake up in the morning and the first thought that comes to our mind is not a good thought toward the Lord, but a lazy thought, that's why our first, our first instinct, my first instinct ought to be, Lord, help me. Help me. You know I have no ability at all. You know I can't do it. I cannot walk with you today. That's, that, that's our, first, our first words of the Lord. Quicken me. Quicken me. All right, let's look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word of God is settled. Now, what I have noticed, and you have noticed as well, just in, in a mere 20 years, things that we all thought were settled facts are no longer settled. Now, I'm not referring to, I'm not saying objectively, and absolutely, but I'm saying things that, you know, politicians, I mean, if, if you want fodder and you want somebody to attack, you can always attack a politician. I mean, you, they're, they're just so easy to attack because they, they change. There's so much change. You can just go back 20 years and you got this idea of gay marriage and there were, listen, there were liberal and progressive politicians even who were saying things about gay marriage that we would agree with. Were they not? Were they not? And some of them are religious people and would say, they would state it. You know, this is our religious conviction. We believe in God. We believe God made man and woman. And marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. I'm using this only as an example. as a kind of a case study, right? So you look at it just in a mere 20 years how much that has changed. It went from marriage. Now it's, uh, now it's gender Now it's the ability to change gender. Now it's the question of whether a person actually has an established gender. You know what? You think about how all, you know, those people that have asserted those things, how they have changed their mind and they've changed their mind. You know what's happened? As they have changed their mind, I'm talking Christian people, Christians, air quotes for those who are listening. As they have changed their mind, you know what they've done? They have attempted to alter God's word to conform to their change. That's what has happened. And it's not just in a, and I want to be careful because, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't talk about political things except as it overlaps with things that are, are scriptural because I just, I don't think it's worth, worth our time, especially in church. But in these matters, It's not just the ideas of of gay marriage and the trans thing and all that that's so common today. It's in everything. I mean, it's everywhere. People's mind is changing and it's all going in a bad direction. And they're attempting to change the Word of God and reinterpret it, alter it, de-emphasize some things, you know, emphasize other things even more. They're they're altering God's Word on, on these subjects as they go. To, as the authority to support what, they're, what they're, they have changed. That's not new. Here's the thing. So here's what I want you to understand about this verse. 
for the word of the Lord to be settled in heaven means that it will not change. There's a contrast in here between heaven and earth. On earth, what I just described is the changing scene. People want to change the word of God and say, oh, well, it doesn't really mean that. Oh, it's not really, you know, of course, it's, it's rare that someone actually alters the text, you know, like, a, like Jehovah's Witnesses will actually alter the text of Scripture. But what they do is, is the, the little nefarious thing is they, they change the what it means or they attempt to change what it means. But here's the thing. What God said at the beginning is still the same as it ever was. It has not changed. In heaven, there is no debate. You understand? In heaven, there is no debate on these matters. What God said 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago is still true. It has not changed. Now, on earth, it might change, but it has not changed, in fact. It has not changed. That's what this verse is, is, is saying. Upon earth, the word of God, men corrupt it, men alter it, men remove things they dislike, add things that they want to be there. But in God's sight, it is not any different than it was when he spoke it. We would do well to stick with what the text says, right? Even if it puts us on the wrong side of whoever, that's what we need to do. We need to stick with what it says. Well, that's old-fashioned. That's fine. The Bible is old. That's okay. You know what? It's settled. It's not going to change. Let's keep going just for time's sake because we're out of time almost already. Verse 90 and verse 91 says, Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances for all of thy servants. I see I'm not going to get past this verse. The ordinance says, in this verse, in verse, in verse uh, I, miss, I was going to say verse 3, but it's the third in the set here. Verse 91, the ordinance says here is not a reference to God's written word like it usually is. This is a reference to the laws of nature, but we shouldn't really call them laws of nature because nature wouldn't exist except for the God who created it. Nature is not a self-existent thing like people describe it, Mother Nature. Nature has a creator. And not only did God create all the things that are, He created the laws that govern those things. Those in this verse are called ordinances. Those are ordinances. Those are the laws of nature that God established to rule over His creation. And you think about this, this is quite a, an, an interesting point from a scientific point of view. Not only did God create the materials, He also created the laws that govern the materials. Job 38.33 says this, Knowest thou, this is God speaking to Job, He says, Knowest thou the ordinance of, ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? In Jeremiah 31, verse 35 and 36, he says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, 
which divideth the sea and the waves thereof roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation forever before me. You know, people say, you know, back in the time in which scientific knowledge was less than it is today, people needed God to explain what we might call the phenomena of nature, right? They said, well, they didn't know everything, so they just said, well, God did it. Well, now in our well-informed and knowledgeable day, 2023, with all of our microscopes and telescopes and otoscopes and whatever kind of scopes they use. We know so much more than we know now or than they knew then, true. But you know what? They are, they've learned a lot more. Science, I'm thankful for science. I had a piece of clear plastic in my eye right on top of my uh, pupil the other day. I was thankful that the doctor had some sort of scope that he could use to dig that thing out of my eye, and I didn't feel a thing. Thank the Lord for that. But you know what? That does nothing. Knowing more does nothing to explain the ordinances that God established. We think because we know more, we can explain God away, but it actually just raises more questions. In fact, in verse number, what does it say? Verse number this, verse number 91. For all are thy servants. He's referring to the physical creation. I did, I'll finish with this. <clears throat> you take the sun. How many stars are there in the observable universe up to this point that we can see? Anybody know? Oh, I'm talking about with telescopes and everything. I'm talking about the total known. Wrong. Close. Close. There are approximately 10 to the 22 power stars in the observable universe. That means there's more. We just got to look harder and better. All right. Now get this. Now, you have, the number, you have the number of stars that is known to science that are observable from the earth, okay? If you take one Hiroshima bomb and you multiply that, the amount of energy that came from that bomb, that was a big bomb in 1945, and you multiply that one Hiroshima bomb by the number of stars in the, in the observable universe, that is the amount of energy that the sun produces in one second. And the sun is just a little average star, they say. This verse in verse 91, what does it say? All are thy servants. It is a nothing to God. That's just one thing. Here's the thing. As I was coming up in school, People didn't mention God very often when in the context of science. There was no need of God. Look at all that we know. We have not grown out of the need of God. As we, as we zoom further, further in into all this wonder that God created, in each thing, in every case, from DNA to cell structure, whatever you want, the stars, they have everything. As we look further and further down with our various kinds of scopes, you know what we find? We still cannot explain it. And there's still so much that we cannot understand. 
And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Scientists think, well, I, look at all that we've known. And God's like, you haven't even touched the, the, the hem of the garment. They are all his servants. God's faithfulness and power sustain it. We'll have to stop there. Let's pray.